Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Novel. Before we begin, a content warning. The following episode contains difficult themes and violence. After making sure my little brother gets on his bus... I walk a couple of blocks up the hill to wait on mine. It's the fall of 1983, and I'm heading into the first grade. Throughout elementary school, neighborhood friends and I meet at the driveway of some stranger's house to keep an eye out for the big yellow school bus that will take us through Nashville. For the next four years, I always sit next to the window so I can see the city go by. The morning journey starts in North Nashville, near Jefferson Street, a black historic neighborhood. The bus snakes through the streets of quiet homes where you just knew someone's grandparents lived. There are chairs on front porches, no matter how small, and carefully wild bushes of roses or honeysuckle or whatever bright, colorful flowers bloom when it's their time. Instead of taking the 40 interstate that had devastated the neighborhood with its arrival in the 1960s, The bus bounces over railroad tracks into the west side of Nashville until we arrive in Sylvan Park, a white part of town. The deeper we go, the denser the trees grow, blocking the sun. Not in a menacing way, in an undisturbed way. The houses range from quaint to gingerbread to many country castles, and it's clear, no one is sending an interstate through this neighborhood. As the bus glides into position in front of my elementary school, I steel myself for the day ahead. Inside, I'll be separated from my bus friends and become the only black girl in whatever they called gifted classes back then. I only see my black friends at lunch and PE, and then again in the afternoon on the bus ride back to North Nashville. When I became an adult, I realized I'd been part of a long-term busing program to help desegregate schools in Nashville. 
The rhythms of my daily school year routine, the long winding bus journey, days split between black friends and family and white classmates and teachers, were all part of a bigger political project to address a deep legacy of discrimination and segregation. And though I didn't quite realize it at the time, I was learning not just about multiplication, spelling, and how to write in cursive. I was also absorbing lessons about what it meant to succeed as a Black girl in America. What was expected of you? What lines and worlds you had to carefully walk between? When I started working on this podcast, I recognized this part of myself in Eunice Carter— the need to be respectable, to be able to move in white spaces. When we last left Eunice, she had been dreaming of making an impact and had decided the law was the place she was going to do that. By 1928, Eunice left her writing and the Harlem Renaissance behind. When I was separated from my Black friends in school for advanced classes, I did not enjoy being the only Black person or the only Black girl in the room. I wondered if being singled out for her intelligence and ambition was important to Eunice. As she separated herself from her parents' legacy and the rest of her community in Harlem, it seems like she wanted more for herself. But did she worry? What would happen if she failed? I'm Nicole Perkins, and from the teams at iHeartRadio and Novel, this is The Godmother. Episode 3, Breaking Through. To go past um, a point at where a lot of the ball, like clubs were, mm-hmm. go past St. Philip's Episcopal Church, we can go by... During my walking tour of Harlem, one of the stops my guide was most excited to show me was 7th Avenue. We're going to start going down 7th Avenue. Okay. We can go by where Billie Holiday was discovered. We can go to the home of Langston News. We'll cut across Fifth okay. Avenue and go across to Langston News' house. At the height of the Harlem Renaissance, Seventh Avenue was the scene of some of its best nightlife. And just a few blocks south of Seventh Avenue and 135th Street was this large elm tree. It had grown there for decades, and it was nicknamed the Tree of Hope or the Wishing Tree. It gave 7th Avenue the name, the Boulevard of Dreams. The story is that one day, one of Harlem's actors stood underneath this elm tree wishing for a job, and then a producer walked up to offer him one. In 1933, America is firmly in the midst of the Great Depression. Passersby are touching that elm tree for good luck, placing their hands on its trunk, wishing for work, I wonder if Eunice was superstitious at all. If she ever made a wish on the tree trunk as she passed by. Six years have passed since we last saw Eunice. And she's looking for somewhere to hang the shingle for her own private law practice. She 
she'd settled on an office just a little way down from the Tree of Hope. She'd graduated law school and passed the bar. For all intents and purposes, she'd succeeded in her plan to escape a more traditional life as housewife and socialite. But if some of that elm tree luck rubbed off on Eunice, her first couple of years as a private practice attorney do not show it. It was a far cry from what she imagined for herself when she entered law school. First, let's go back in time a little bit to Eunice Hunton Carter arriving at the Woolworth Building, downtown Manhattan, on a bright September day in 1927. The Woolworth Building at 233 Broadway is glamorous and gothic. Imagine Westminster Abbey, but slicker and as a skyscraper. It's got a cathedral-like presence, all 58 floors looming over the city. Eunice enters the lobby that day, full of hope and with an ambitious plan. She needs to navigate her way out of the monotony facing her. She's not just a writer or a housewife and mother. She's not just Mrs. Lyle Carter. She is more, or at least she plans to be. As Eunice steps into that lobby for the first time, she is surrounded by intricate gold latticework, mosaics, glossy marble stone, shafts of light filtering through lead light windows. When she enters the elevator, an attendant dings the button that will take her up to the 27th and 28th floor. Fordham Law School. There's a library, three large classrooms, some offices for the dean and the registrar. There's a smoking room and the most spectacular view, the New York City skyline. It's around six o'clock in the evening. Long shadows cast by the setting sun on the west side. She was attending at night while still working as a social worker. A lot of law schools made it difficult to attend if you were working or had other obligations. So women, Black people, Jewish people, Catholics, the was trying to keep all these people out of the practice of law. And so Fordham was trying to be more inclusive by allowing people to attend night classes. Eunice's decision to attend law school probably came with considerable debate. She had a toddler at home, a perfectly good career under her belt already. Eunice's own mother, Addie, preached that the best place for a Black woman was by her husband's side, at home, not gallivanting around Manhattan at night. A masterclass example of the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do lifestyle. Eunice strikes me as a stubborn woman, and as a stubborn woman myself, I wouldn't be surprised if all the possible backlash against her decision made her even more determined to earn her law degree. I'm sure there were plenty of people who doubted her ability to succeed, including her classmates. Is she stared at as she makes her way to class? Do her peers wonder whether she strolled in by accident? She probably got that a lot in her life, surprised at seeing her in predominantly white spaces. I wonder if anyone accused her of cheating or how many times she remained quiet so no one thought she was trying to prove herself better than everyone else. 
maybe she had her own doubts. As smart and determined as she is, she's only human. Despite it all, during that first term at Fordham in 1927, Eunice's marks are unsurprisingly good. She liked the study of law a lot, found it very interesting. She was very detail-oriented. Eunice's forte was doing, you know, research, and she kind of excelled in going through documents. But she's not at Fordham too long when clouds appear on the horizon and things start to slide to the left. In her second year at Fordham, Eunice takes a sabbatical. Publicly, she tells people that it's because she's sick. Later, she would say it was actually her son, Lyle Carter Jr., who was ill. But there's some historical speculation over this. From everything I know about Eunice, the idea of her taking a break from law school seems unusual. Maybe the loneliness of being the only Black person in a sea of white men was getting to her. The only reason I question it is that she wasn't even resting during that time off. Even during her time off for illness, she was working still, political activism and campaigning. This is Eunice's first foray into politics. She's working on the campaigns of some Republican candidates. That was probably as much of an education as law school. Eunice's leave of absence was 18 months, but something must have drawn her back because eventually she returns to her evening studies. She doesn't have the kind of instant success she's probably used to. So she did uh, fail the bar exam the first time that she took it and had to retake it um, and passed on the second try. To be fair to Eunice, her exam was on mortgages, so she might have had trouble staying awake. In the end, she does finally pass her exams. Between her education, law school, and her foray into politics, Eunice has to recognize a theme. She's often the only Black woman in white, male-dominated spaces. Is this what she thought she had to deal with in order to be at the top? In 1933, Eunice becomes one of the first Black female qualified lawyers in New York. But what has she sacrificed of herself to get there? Walking along the Boulevard of Dreams, past the Tree of Hope, and towards her small private practice office in Harlem, Eunice would have been carrying the weight of the decisions she'd made. To be a trailblazer sometimes means being so far ahead, you end up alone. So when she does finally open up her business, things were pretty slow. There are no professional accolades and finalizing wills. No one is going to write an article about her for handling misdemeanor charges. It's not exactly prestigious work. Eunice may have been a lawyer, but she wasn't exactly setting the world of law on fire. But she sticks with this for nearly two years. Did she ever worry she had flung herself in the wrong direction? Did she have too much pride to turn back? Has she sacrificed too much to retrace her steps? I know I've made some decisions that made me question if I'd made the right move, but I kept moving forward. Sometimes that's the only way to shake off self-doubt. This must have been the, quote, tale of long, dark years she'd imagined for others when she wrote that essay of hers about blazing trails and breaking through. 
While she's struggling to break through on her path, Eunice's former neighbor from her Brooklyn childhood, Lucky Luciano, is succeeding beyond his wildest dreams. He had chosen a very different route up the mountain. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, Sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so when we last left legendary New York mobster Lucky Luciano, he was graduating too, through the layers of the New York underworld hierarchy. And in the 20s, as Eunice had been making her way in Harlem, during her years as a czarina and social climber, Lucky was doing a similar thing, making new friends. New friends with a certain status. They called them the Broadway mob. Frank Costello, Myra Lansky, Benny Siegel. Hip-hop heads and fans of gangster movies alike should recognize these names in a heartbeat. Lucky's new associates have traveled through time to become some of the most well-known mobsters ever. What um, distinguished Lucky's Broadway mob from a lot of other gangs was that it was multi-ethnic. Myra Lansky was Jewish. Benny Siegel was Jewish. Frank Costello was Italian. Unlike his old-fashioned mafia predecessors, what he called the old mustache peats. By the 1930s, Lucky and his crew are serious players in the world of New York crime. 
and in 1931, as Eunice is arriving downtown at the Woolworth Building each evening, struggling to finish law school, Lucky is finding things a little easier. Soon, he's headed out each evening from an equally impressive Manhattan address, the Waldorf Astoria, the largest and tallest hotel in the world. This is Lucky Luciano's new home. Those who catch a glimpse of him riding down the elevator from his 39th floor suite and walking confidently through the luxurious lobby will see an almost unrecognizable figure. He's no longer the scruffy street urchin from Little Italy. Lucky Luciano was known for silk underwear, silk shirts, never a suit off the rack, always tailored, pinky ring, His, in particular, was gold. The shoes were always, of course, Italian leather. Uh, If they would wear a fedora, it was usually some expensive fur. Everything from head to toe is specially tailored. This was the general dress of the guys that quote-unquote made it. Yes, there was vanity. Some could argue it was narcissism. But there was more to it than that. They didn't want to look like gangsters. They wanted to look like upstanding, high-society citizens. They want to look like the Rockefellers. Eunice and Lucky Luciano, their journey to respectability is quite similar. Eunice uses education and class status. Lucky uses a tailored and expensive wardrobe to prove himself. And for now, at least... Lucky's methods seem to be the ones getting results. It was New York high life, if there ever was one. Traveled in the best cars, dined in the finest restaurants, hobnobbed with celebrities, living high up in the Waldorf Astoria. All the best trappings, the best parties. For extra protection, he now uses bodyguards and uses frequent aliases. But not all of Lucky's physical changes since those days when he and Eunice were kids in Brooklyn are deliberate. He's had his own years of struggle, too. Just a few years before he came to live at the Astoria, Lucky Luciano was abducted, taken to Staten Island, beaten up, scarred, bleeding, passed out, and tossed out on a beach. Abducted by police, so the story goes. The reason they were beating him up, according to Lucky Luciano, is they wanted information on a criminal who was more infamous than he was at that time. He wouldn't give it up, so they beat the hell out of him. So by 1931, Lucky's appearance is also marked by scars that line his face and a droopy eye. From that moment on, The mythology of Lucky Luciano's scars was born. You can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs. And it's no surprise Lucky's rise to the Waldorf had caused him to get into some scrapes. Ever since Lucky had walked away from school, he was regularly in contact with some of the underworld's most violent citizens. And not just in Little Italy. Across the country from New York to Chicago to Detroit to San Francisco... These people were all on the same page. And that page? Well, 
While Eunice had been riding high on the socialite scene in 1920s Harlem Renaissance, Lucky and his contemporaries had been getting rich, supplying all the booze that had been helping Harlem swing. This is the era of prohibition. When religious zealots convinced the federal government to ban the production, sale, and transportation of alcohol during the 20s. Prohibition is the best thing that ever happened to the mob because we have something that is illegal, but for which there's still a very active and consistent market. The government had created a gold mine for all kinds of outlaws. Prohibition makes an entire sector of the economy, the booze sector, illegal overnight. That means if you want a glass of beer, you're going to have to concert with criminals all of a sudden. There needs now to be more criminals to provide all this booze. Lucky isn't just any kind of outlaw. He has a particular knack for making friends in useful places and keeping them. There's so many little stories, not even major things, but there's just many stories of both men and women coming in contact with him and singling him out for being this very charismatic man. His experience of striving for more in multi-ethnic Little Italy has given him a special appreciation for working across different gangs. He certainly wanted as much power for himself as possible, but if it benefited him, he did not see any problem with crossing ethnic lines. Lucky was able to make the kind of connections necessary when sourcing booze from across the country. That's where you see the rise of modern organized crime starting to work across state lines, across city lines, with bosses beginning to collaborate because it's very expensive and very difficult to move a lot of liquor. You need to have really good connections. To supply, for example, a Harlem speakeasy where jazz pioneer Fletcher Henderson might pop in to pass the time. Between sets, Maybe he sweet-talks a young legal student who stopped by on her way home from her evening classes at the Woolworth building. So the rumor goes. Something to help them both ignore that ring on her finger. Prohibition provides the opportunity for mobsters to become millionaires. Literally, these are men in their 20s and 30s that are making millions of dollars when the average salary is a couple thousand dollars in the United States. And that's how Lucky came to be living it up, riding high on the boozy wave of prohibition, a wave that sweeps him as high as the 39th floor of the Waldorf Astoria. In 1931, he's far from done riding that wave, but all waves eventually break. Lucky's existence in the early 1930s isn't all high life. Yes, there's the jewelry, the silk shirts, the opium parties, the showgirls. But the scars that he sees on his face each morning in the mirror are likely an unnecessary reminder. Lucky operates in a high-stakes business, full of danger, death, and betrayal. At the start of 1931, there are still those above Lucky in the mob food chain, because New York is reaching the climax of an especially bloody mob feud, something that will be known as the Castellamarese War. Lucky is going to use that war to catapult himself to the top of the underworld food chain, 
and unbeknownst to him, right into Eunice's orbit. So this Castellamarese War. From 1930 to 1931, Lucky and many of his brethren are fighting against each other in a two-pronged war between two would-be mob bosses in New York. Two prongs, two mob bosses. Joe Mazzaria and Salvatore Marazzano. But you don't need to remember them. They're both about to die. These two guys have been the main New York mob powers for quite a while. So gangsters know, if you're involved in crime in New York, you've generally got to be kicking up some of your profits to one of them. And Lucky? He was working for Masseria and realized, as did his brethren, Masseria was weak. On an April morning in 1931, Lucky heads over to Coney Island for a spot of lunch with the boss, Masseria. Legend has it he is at the table when gunmen roll into the restaurant, aim their guns at Joe Masseria, and shoot. And that ended the Castellarese War. You might be wondering how Lucky made such a lucky escape from lunch that day. But don't worry. He actually organized the whole assassination himself. Lucky Luciano agreed to kill Joe the Boss, Masseria, and throw his lot in with Salvatore Maranzano. And now, in this act of Machiavellian betrayal, Lucky Luciano is an even more powerful mobster. But he's not done there. Especially when word reaches him that luck might not last with the new boss. Maranzano put a nail in his own coffin when he wrote a list of all the people he wanted knocked off. And on that list was Lucky Luciano. This mobster, Maranzano, had written down an actual hit list. It doesn't seem like a very wise thing for a wise guy to do. And in September 1931, Mafia lore says that associates of Lucky's disguised themselves as treasury agents. They entered Maranzano's office, stabbed and shot him to death. Put yourself in Lucky's shoes. You've just betrayed your first boss, and now the man you've done it for is journaling about having you killed. He might not have felt he had any choice left but to take some kind of action. Anyway, by the fall of 1931, Lucky's taken out two bosses of New York's underworld. When the smoke cleared in 1931, Lucky Luciano was the head of organized crime in New York. But then, according to gangster lore again, Lucky is said to do something even more ambitious. Something that a million mob movies and self-claimed mob informants will refer back to for decades to come. Luciano decided it's not very safe to be a boss of bosses because somehow you don't last very long in that capacity. What he really does is he creates a board of directors. Lucky is said to have created something called the commission. He's going to be its head, a chairman of the board of sorts. He structures it so that everything, yes, kind of has to go through him, but also has to go through every other leader. 
He developed a new job description for the boss of bosses. Lucky Luciano. He's called the man who organized crime in America for that reason. That's how Lucky will end up at the Waldorf Astoria, sleeping easily in his big feather bed each night. But remember, he is a mobster. And the quiet life can only last for so long. Just a few years later, in 1931, as Eunice sits in her Harlem law office waiting for her next client to call with an exciting will or mortgage application, alarm bells are going off across organized crime in America. Prohibition is coming to an end. All of a sudden, this huge illegal economy just goes away. And you have all these bootleggers looking around thinking, what's our next opportunity? Where are we going to go? They're not going to go get jobs in the insurance industry. It's time for Lucky and his crew to conjure up some new ways to keep those silk shirts on their backs. But these guys are professional opportunists. And all around, they see a world ripe for exploitation. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, Sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. 
This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd been to most speakeasies or jazz clubs in New York in the era of Prohibition, you're likely to have noticed a few consistent things. The music, of course. Free and flowing. This is the jazz age after all. There's the booze. Illegal, but thanks to the likes of Lucky and his networks, just as free-flowing as the jazz around you. Then there's the crowd, full of bright light and energy, people like Eunice in her 20s and 30s, cool and glamorous. But linger a little longer, look a little closer. You might notice some others in the crowd, maybe looking a little bit more world-weary. If you are at all interested in the jazz age, that means you are probably interested in nightlife. It's like a three-legged stool. You gotta have music, you gotta have some kind of stimulant, and you gotta have women. And turns out, there are not enough women to populate every speakeasy and every jazz club, every dive in New York City, unless you pay them. Okay. So we're back in the late 20s now. Prohibition is still in full swing, so to speak. Eunice was having a harder time than she's used to at law school, and Lucky is still just a man on the way up in the underworld. We're in a spot on the Upper West Side, just a little farther downtown from the places Eunice frequents in Harlem. And to be honest, the place we're in isn't the kind of spot Eunice would likely choose to visit anyway. Across the room sits a small, pale woman with scarlet-painted lips. Or at least, that's how the papers will come to describe her. Her name is Florence Newman. Or Florence Brown. Or Cokie Flo Brown. Or just Cokie Flo. I'm going to stick with Cokie Flo. And she's had a pretty rough journey before arriving here this evening. There are, of course, vast swaths of women who are, in fact, compelled, who are trafficked, who are manipulated or beaten into being prostitutes. In many ways, it's a very difficult, stressful, a dangerous job for a lot of people, but it pays well and it can offer women a tremendous amount of autonomy. Cokie Flo first came to New York in the 1920s by the way of Cleveland, Ohio and Duluth, Minnesota having been taken in by a businessman at just 15 years old. By 18, Cokie Flo has moved on to become a mistress to three different underworld figures. There are people who are using it just like a stepping stone in their career. By the late 1920s, she's in New York and running her own brothels. On the Upper East Side and some across town on the East Side. She operated as a madam. You could really find sex at every price point. If you're looking to buy sex, it's not just Cokie Flo's houses that you want to consider. New York City provides a world of options. There are top dollar joints. They were like high-end speakeasies where they have the best food and they have cooks so you could stop by any time for a nightcap and some 
free food and top flight booze, and you could hang out, you could gamble, you could just come and drink with your friends, play backgammon with the madam, and maybe head off to the bedroom, or maybe not. From there, you move down the scale. There were $10 houses where you could show up and it would be nice and you might get a little rushed. And further down the scale, $2 houses. Where they would actually have a ticket that you would wear on your bathrobe. And as you service some man, the housekeeper would click it so that at the end of the night, you would see how many people. And there are women who were servicing 30, 40 men a night. They just move you through. Sex workers in the 20s also faced some new challenges because across America, a general atmosphere of unspoken tolerance towards the profession is now turning sour. At the beginning of the 20th century, it was still super common for young men to lose their virginity in brothels. Um, Most towns of any size had a red light district where it wasn't legal, but it was sort of tolerated. The problem comes for uh, the people in the business of the flesh trades around World War I, where there is an uproar over prostitution uh, gaining visibility. You got all these young boys joining the military going overseas and going to brothels with all kinds of sexually transmitted diseases and all kinds of bad habits. And so the government feels like we cannot be having all these young men uh, bringing home sexually transmitted diseases and bringing shame upon our war and our army. So they require any town that hosts troops to shut down all of their red light districts. So by the early 20s, the madams running brothels feel they have to be fairly discreet. Now, that doesn't mean there's no more prostitutes. They just go underground. You might meet a woman like Koki Flo in a speakeasy, but her trade is usually carried out from somewhere else nearby. The women have to go into apartment buildings where they're not going to be seen by cops as much, where they're going to be able to hide. Just as people sell dinner plates or do hair from their homes, there are some women who run sex work operations out of these apartments. Think Airbnbs for sex, scattered across the city. There were just places where you could do whatever you weren't supposed to be doing out in public. So that's where you start to see the rise of the booker. All you had to do is if you got a call, you could say, okay, go to West 73rd Street. The key is under the mat. There will be a girl waiting for you or there will be a girl that arrives. In fact, real estate and prostitution are deeply intertwined. One of the ways you could be sure to both fill apartment buildings during economic downturns and get top dollar for them is by renting them to madams and prostitutes. They would often pay triple. It also meant that your superintendent was going to get a bribe because it's very hard to keep that secret. Uh, Your doorman would often get a bribe. This is the era when elevators were not automated, so there would usually be an elevator operator who would usually get a bribe. So it was an expensive business to be a madam, actually, but it was a lucrative business if you were a landlord. And it's not just doormen, superintendents, elevator operators, and landlords with their hands out taking money from sex workers. During the 20s, a specific kind of organized criminal is taking money from them, too. It is, in fact, the government entities, the vice ring of the 1920s, which is not dominated by 
criminals. It's not dominated by syndicated crime. They've got other things to do that are far more profitable. It's a ring between the lawyers, the cops, the judges, and the girls. It is the law who are bleeding the prostitutes dry. But as we move into the early 30s, as Lucky is playing both sides in the Castellamarese War, something surprising happens. A whole bunch of these corrupt officials, the judges and cops profiting off the sex workers, start to get arrested. City Hall tries to clean house as part of sweeping anti-corruption drives. It doesn't end corruption in New York politics, far from it. But it does have an impact on sex work. And it means that at the start of the 30s, Cokie Flo and her colleagues enter their own strange kind of golden age. Those early years in the 30s are kind of a free-for-all and a great time to be running a house of prostitution because nobody's harassing you from the vice squad. The dirty judges have been mostly kicked out. But remember, this is 1930s America, and a woman-run, unexploited industry was never going to last. When prohibition ends, everything changes. You have all these bootleggers who are looking around thinking, what's our next opportunity? Where are we going to go? So the first thing they do is they say, let's get in on this booking business. On the southern side of East Manhattan, you'll find Mott Street. It's a narrow, bustling thoroughfare, one of the streets where Lucky Luciano grew up. And by the end of Prohibition, it's the headquarters of Italian organized crime. These headquarters are run on Lucky's behalf by a bunch of, well, characters. Real scumbags, if I may say so. These gangsters from Mott Street were creatively known as the Mott Street Boys. Who had been working for Lucky Luciana for years, running the liquor exchange, busting heads, dealing drugs, whatever was profitable. The Mott Street Boys are led by a mid-level mob enforcer. A guy named Tommy the Bold Pinocchio. And at the start of 1934, when the Mott Street Boys and other former bootleggers are still scratching their heads for new ways of making money post-prohibition, it's Tommy the Bull who has the bright idea. Tommy thinks, look, there's a whole untapped industry here that we could begin to shake down. An industry that does not seem to be suffering, despite New York being in the midst of the Great Depression. The taste for brothels and for prostitutes did not decline. The mob hasn't had much of a connection to that trade before at this point, because sex work is a bit of a cottage industry. Individual women servicing individual men. But the Mott Street boys have an idea. A way for scaling up their involvement across lots of sex work operations. They start busting up brothels, and once inside, they give those businesses an offer they can't refuse to use their money as a kind of protection racket for the sex workers in case of trouble with the law. That is to say, pooling money to get women out of jail when they get arrested, and that certainly helps. And you can have it in terms of booking talent. These bookers have become a crucial component to the way sex work in this era operates. Prostitution bookers would treat it like a talent agency where they had a roster of girls that they would send out to different brothels around the city. But as well as connecting the sex workers with customers, bookers provide another service. The women pay the booker 10 bucks a week, and then if you get arrested, he'll come bail you out. 
So now Mott Street Boys are going to run the bookers and the sex workers. They begin to encounter problems almost as soon as they start. Most of the women did not want to work with Tommy the Bull and his gang of thugs. And it's not like sex workers have much spare money to start handing out for this mob protection. They worked 12-hour days, six days a week. They pocketed about $40 out of their roughly $200 in weekly earnings. But what choice do they really have? So the mob moves in and brings an end to that ever-so-brief golden age of sex work. Under the new system, the men working as bookers are making money from the sex workers and the madams, but not as much as those at the top of the tree. Men like Luciano, who demand a cut of all the profits. Sex work is not the only industry noticing an increased mob presence since the fall of Prohibition. As New York moves into the mid-30s, this model of diversification grows and grows. And who was going to stop it? Many suspected, as was the case, that New York politics were deeply corrupted by organized crime. Why were the police so ineffective when it came to curbing some of this organized crime violence? They were crooked. My goodness, the first thing you do if you're going to be a good criminal is to start doing something with the police. The mob is on the move across New York, which meant Harlem as well. I imagine for Eunice, part of Harlem's appeal is the community, the glitz, and the people. But the mob, of course, has more nefarious motivations, especially when it comes to an industry my own family knows a thing or two about. That's coming up in episode four of The Godmother. On this episode of The Godmother, you heard Carolyn Johnson, my Harlem tour guide. Welcome to Harlem. That's the name of my company and stuff. My name's Leah Carter. I am Eunice Carter's great-granddaughter. Her son, Lyle, is my dad's father. Eunice influenced my grandfather, and he influenced my dad, and my dad influenced me. Now that I have a grand unified theory of that, exactly. I'm Marilyn Greenwald. I'm a professor emerita of journalism at Ohio University, and I'm the author of five biographies, including one of Eunice Hunton Carter. My name is Chuck Greaves. Before becoming a writer, I spent 25 years as a Los Angeles trial lawyer. My fourth novel was basically a fictionalization of the famous 1936 Vice trial in which Lucky Luciano was prosecuted by Thomas Dewey. My name is Christian Cipollini, and I am an author and a historian with a specialty in the fields of true crime, organized crime, and cartel history. I am Claire White, and I am the Director of Education at the Mob Museum in downtown Las Vegas. I grew up in Las Vegas, which kind of gives me a, a leg up in that, in that regard. I'm Debbie Applegate. I'm a historian and biographer, and I am the author of Madam, the biography of Polly Adler, icon of the Jazz Age. Hi, my name is Ellen Paulson. I research and I write books about criminal acts and endeavors that took place during the 1930s in the United States. And my focus so far has been women who were involved with notorious gangsters and desperados. 
My name is LaShawn Harris. I am an associate professor of history at Michigan State University in the Department of History. My name is Robert Whalen, and I'm an emeritus professor of history at Queens University of Charlotte here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I've written on both European and American history. I suppose the most relevant book is one I published on Murder Incorporated, which involved people like Thomas Dewey and Eunice Carter and so forth. The Godmother is produced by Novel for iHeartRadio. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. The Godmother is hosted and written by me, Nicole Perkins. Our producer is Leona Hamid. Additional production from Adjua Jima Brimpong, Ronald Young Jr., and Zayana Youssef. Our editor is Adjua Jima Brimpong. Additional story editing from Max O'Brien and Maithili Rao. And our researcher is Zayana Youssef. Additional research from Mohamed Ahmed. David Waters is our executive producer. Field production by Tanita Romani and Palace Shaw. Sound design, mixing, and scoring by Nicholas Alexander and Daniel Kempson. Our score was written, performed, and recorded by Jeff Parker. Music supervision by Nicholas Alexander and David Waters. Production management and endless patience from Cherie Houston, Sarah Tobin, and Charlotte Wolf. Fact-checking by Findel Fulton and Danya Suleiman. Story development by Madeline Parr, Jess Swinburne, and Zayana Youssef. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Special thanks to Leah Carter, Stephen Carter, Angela J. Davis, Andrew Fernley, Marilyn Greenwald, Sandra Lebedy, Catherine Godfrey, Nadia Mady, Amalia Sortland, Sean Glenn, Neil Krishnan, Julia Bromberg, Katrina Norvell, Carly Frankel, and all the team at WME. Novel. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.